Take your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 2 and want to preach to you serious-minded Christians wanted from Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, I think it is becoming clearer and clearer uh, those that are serious about being disciples of Jesus Christ and those who are not interested in, uh, in following Jesus Christ. They may call themselves Christians, they may be sincere in their own minds when they, they use that term, I'm a Christian, but whether they are following Jesus Christ or not, will be clearly seen in their lives. And that's what we're going to talk about today because the doctrine that we believe that comes from the Word of God impacts our lives. It has a direct bearing on how we behave and how we act towards others. And I want to encourage you, I see that God is on the move. Now, whether you see it or I see it or not, God is always on the move. I agree with that. But God is working. We've seen people saved recently, haven't we? And added to Elmira Baptist Church. That's a miraculous work of God. Let's not forget that. It's not because we're good people, not because you're a good talker, I'm a good talker. It's because God loves people and he's merciful and he forgives. We've seen people, we've been praying for people, for their health, and uh, they've been healed. It's, it's really a miracle. Doctors say, we're not really sure what happened. We know what happened. Amen. We prayed and it matters if we pray. Uh, just in this last month, we had uh, somebody walk through the doors that, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, I, I was praying, but humanly speaking, I never thought I would saw, see this person here at Elmira Baptist Church. So why did this person come? Well, because we're praying, and God is on the move. People are changing for the better. But at the same time, and maybe you've noticed this too, there's been more opposition. There's been more trials. There's been more tribulations. Someone asked me recently, why do you think there's been more trials and tribulations? Because that's how God matures his people. I wish it wasn't that way. But he uses our trials and our tribulations to mature us. And if we are going to keep up with a God who is on the move, then we need, we, those of us that are here, I'm including all of you here, we need to be serious-minded Christians who love God and are willing to obey him. We need church members who, are, who will obey God rather than men because they love God more. They love God more than they love their friends. And maybe in some cases they love God more than they love their jobs. Because it may be someday soon that some of you are asked to do things and you're going to have to say, no, I cannot do that as a Christian. And you're going to be told, well, if you can't do that, you're going to lose your job. And it's going to be very clear to you at that moment whether you love God more or you love your job more. We need serious-minded Christians who are soul winners. Not every Christian is a soul winner, by the way. And not every soul winner, by the way, is a mature Christian. I've seen some people that are great soul winners, but not very mature Christians. But every mature Christian is a soul winner. That's who you are as a person. It's not something you do. It's who you are. So I want you to focus on being a mature Christian. Elmira Baptist Church needs fathers and husbands who will lead their families with Christ-like humility. Now, not all leaders in the home have Christ-like humility. But every father, every husband who's a mature Christian leads his family with Christ-like humility. So focus on being a mature Christian. We need mothers and wives who love with Christ's sacrificial love. 
That's, that's a high calling. And every mature Christian mother loves sacrificially. So focus on being a mature Christian. We need young men, we need young women who have a vision for giving their entire lives to Jesus Christ and living for God's glory, not their own ambition. Maybe some of you, you're past the young man, young woman stage, but you can remember back, you're in high school, you're in those college years, you're in your early career, and and the world seems to stretch out before you with endless possibilities. And you need to take all those possibilities and you need to put them at the feet of Jesus and you need to say, what do you pick for me, God? That's what we need young people like that. We need Christians who will endure suffering, who will endure physical infirmities, who will endure unfulfilled desires, and will endure, endure those things with joy. Not even a Christian does well enduring the difficulties. And very few do it with joy. But what does the Bible tell us? Rejoice in the Lord most of the time. When things are going well, when you feel good, no, rejoice in the Lord always. And those who are mature Christians joyfully endure despite difficulties, realizing that the command is rejoice in the Lord always. So focus on being a mature Christian. That's what this message is about, being a mature Christian. Now, there's a couple reasons why I think we see fewer and fewer mature Christians. And one, we've talked about a couple of weeks past, and, and I'm not going to hit that point again today hard, but let me just remind you, it's because of a lack of commitment. It's because we don't like to be committed. We don't like to be committed to anything anymore. But especially when it comes to Jesus Christ being Lord of our lives, it's just too easy to say, you know what? Give me a smorgasbord, Lord, and let me pick what I like. But God's will is not a smorgasbord where you choose the parts you like. So there's a lack of commitment. But I'll I'll tell you the second thing that I'm, I'm, I'm coming to comprehend as I talk with Christians. There's this misunderstanding that somehow God is going to change your life without you making choices. Like you'll get up in the morning and you'll just be a different person and things will just be different because. Now, it's true that God sanctifies us and I I. I Praise the Lord for that. But he sanctifies me and he sanctifies you by sending difficulties into our lives, by giving us infirmities, by giving us chronic illnesses, by putting an irritating person in our lives. He does that by taking away financial resources that we thought we had. So we come back to the Lord and we say, what do I do? And God says, well, the same thing I wanted you to do from the beginning, which was depend on me. But we forget that as our bank account grows bigger, as our retirement nest egg grows bigger. We think that it's just going to happen, just, just like God will strike us with a bolt of lightning and we'll be someone different. But the truth is, it's the choices that you make on a daily basis. There's two verses that I want to remind you of. The first we've looked at in the spring, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, Notice these next words, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Those are choices you make. I I can't make them for you. Now, I can give you advice and counsel. I can call you and say, hey, how did it go? You can call me and say, that didn't work so well. What did I do wrong? I mean, my point is you're not all alone in this, but you have to make those choices. I can't make them for you. 
And I have to make those choices. I have to decide what time I'm going to get up in the morning if I'm going to have time to read my Bible and pray before the current of the day carries me off. It's choices that we make. And serious-minded Christians understand that. Listen to this verse from 1 Corinthians 15, 31. I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. That was Paul's comment. I die daily. 1 Corinthians 15, 31. Lord willing, we're going to look more at that this evening, what he meant by I die daily. But he's making a daily choice to die to self so that he can live to God. And too many Christians, we lack commitment. We're waiting for this bolt of lightning to come out of heaven and strike us and make us into something that, frankly, if God made you into that person, you wouldn't want to be that person. Because we have this sin nature. And we want God to make our lives more comfortable. And I'm telling you, God wants to make your life more uncomfortable. And it doesn't seem right. We say, well, God, I love you. I'm your child. Why didn't you just give me everything I want? And God says, because that's not what's good for you. It's like you're, maybe some of you have different children, but I know when I was growing up and I know my children when they were growing up, if I let them eat what they wanted to eat, they would have not chosen a healthy diet. In fact, I, I still don't choose a healthy diet. If I didn't have a wife who loved me and said, sweetheart, should you really be eating that? I'd still be eating that way. That's human nature. We say, God, get me out of this problem. And God says, no, no, I put you there for a reason. What, what is it that I want to teach you? What is it that there is to learn in that problem? One man said it this way. Christians want Jesus to inspire them, but Jesus wants to interfere with their lives. We don't want God to interfere. We've got our own plans. We've got our own ambitions. You know, we, we know where we're going and what we want to do. But what does God do? He comes in and he changes my circumstances. And maybe he brings illness or maybe he brings a financial reverse or maybe, like he said, he puts an irritant in my life or any number of things. And instead of responding with, Lord, what are you teaching me? I say, I don't like this. God, get me out of here. Now, let me ask you to consider with me the difference between what I'll call a serious Christian and a casual Christian. Now, I'm not remarking on their eternal destiny, and I'm not remarking on whether their sins are forgiven. I'm talking about commitment and a willingness to make hard choices. What's the difference between a serious Christian and a casual Christian? And I've been thinking about this even before last week. But do you recall last week, Dr. Livioko came to us from the Philippines, and he brought to us Luke chapter 6, verse 46. And I'm paraphrasing. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do what I tell you to do? You see, a serious Christian doesn't just call Jesus Lord, he does something to obey. The casual Christian says Jesus is Lord, but he doesn't want to actually change his life. The serious Christian knows there's a difference, be, uh, that, excuse me, that there's no difference between doctrine, what the Bible teaches us, and behavior. But the casual Christian tries to somehow tease out this, well, I know God says that, but I'm going to do something different. Serious Christians are intentional. Casual Christians are aspirational. Let me say that again. Serious Christians are intentional. They say, okay, I want to do this, so I've got to make some choices. The casual Christian is aspirational. Let me give you the difference here. You know what I aspire to do? I aspire to go to Europe 
and see some of those beautiful castles. How many of you have seen beautiful castles in Europe? I've not. I've never. I'd love to someday. But it's just an aspiration with me. So you say, well, are you saving money to go to Europe? No. Do you know where you want to go and which castles you want to see? No. Do you know when you want to go? No. Do you have a passport? Yes, I, I have a passport. I really don't, I'm not making plans to get to Europe. I, that's just something in my mind I'd like to be. Don't be an aspirational Christian. Oh, I'd love to be that way someday. Listen, if you want to be that way someday, it starts with making choices today. And it's going to continue with making different choices tomorrow. I, I, I have friends, and I won't mention any by name, but I've had more than one friend say something like, I'd love to lose weight. And then someone else from their own family pipes up, well, that's not the way you're eating. <laughs> we know that if I want to change my weight, I'm going to have to change my diet. But a lot of us are aspirational dieters too, aren't we? Oh, I should really lose another 10 or 15 pounds. Well, what are you doing about it? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing wrong with aspirational. I'm just saying, when it comes to Christianity, don't be an aspirational Christian. Be an intentional Christian. Serious Christians are willing to have God intervene in their lives. Now, I'm not saying it's comfortable or... It's sort of like praying for patience, knowing that that's going to bring problems. But you need the patience, so you're willing to go through the problems to learn the patience. Casual Christians only want God to make them comfortable. Serious Christians make the hard choices. Casual Christians say there's always next week. Serious Christians pay the price. Casual Christians consider the cost. They look at it. <laughs> that's hard. I'm not going to do that. Now, by the way, I have good news for you in this message. If you're one of those casual Christians who've been considering the cost, but you just don't see how it's possible, I have good news for you today. But here's what one evangelist said, Vance Habner said, there are many who say they want to be victorious Christians, but few are willing to endure the discipline necessary to make one a good soldier of Jesus Christ. There is a prize to possess but before we possess it, there is a price to be paid, and few will pay it. That's what he said, and he's right. Don't be an aspirational Christian. Don't be, I hope someday in the future to be like that. Oh, wouldn't it be great to be like that? Say, God, what choices do I have to make today, tomorrow, Tuesday, through next Sunday, in order to be a, a serious Christian? Now, we're told in Matthew that there are four parts of this Great Commission. The first part of the Great Commission is to go. To go and tell people, go and proclaim the good news that Jesus is the Savior from our sins. That, that's the first part. The second part is to teach them. That is to cause them to be disciples, to cause them to follow Christ. The third part is to baptize them. And then the fourth part, and we read this earlier, is teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Now, American Christianity, let's say that we do okay at the first part, which is go. I don't think we do, but let's just say we do. And we do great at baptizing people because that's the easy part. You get a big bunch of water and you push them out under the water and you bring them back up. We're doing a terrible job of teaching them to observe all the things that Jesus commanded us to do. Because we're afraid if we actually tell them what Jesus wants them to do, they'll get scared and they'll run away. But the truth is, how do we make disciples if they don't want to follow Jesus Christ? 
They're not disciples if they don't want to. To be a disciple requires them to walk in the steps that Jesus walked in. To obey his commands. So let's look here in in Titus at uh, some of these commands that God gives us. Uh, And these have to deal with our our daily lives, what goes on in our home. Um, The slides are not advancing like I think they should, but we'll we'll work on that here. Um, There's a method here. And remember, Titus has been left behind in an island called Crete. I'm in Titus chapter 2, and I'm going to read to you the first 12 verses here in a second. He's been left behind in an island called Crete. Are the people who live on Crete, the Cretans, that's what their names were, the Cretans, are they good people? No. No, they're not good people. They did not grow up in, in, with the Bible. Uh, they're not, mostly not Jews. There are a lot of Gentiles there. They don't really know the first thing about the God of the Bible. If the general populace and the people that Titus is working with, even though they're saved, they've got lots of problems. So you'd think Paul would say to Titus, you know what? You probably just need to go easy on them. You ask too much of them. You tell them what God really expects of them, and they're just going to cut bait and run. It's like your friend who says, hey, you want to go fishing? Yeah, I'd love to go fishing. Okay, let's meet at 4 o'clock in the morning. No, 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 no. Not going fishing. If I got to get up at four o'clock in the morning to go anywhere, I'm not going. Now, others of you are like, four o'clock in the morning, where do you go? I, I usually get up at three. <laughs> I got a friend here in this room. He drives out, takes his boat out to the Farallon Islands out there. I don't know, 50, 60 miles offshore. I can tell you, he doesn't get up at five in the morning to be there. Listen, if you want to be a fisherman, you've got to sacrifice something. And if you want to be a serious Christian, it's going to cost you something. And if that bothers you, I'm asking you to go to God and talk to him about it. Because God cares far more about us than we care about ourselves. Here's what he says. Follow along as I read out loud in Titus chapter 2. I'm going to actually read all the way to verse 13. Titus 2, chapter 1, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, and patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh godliness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men, likewise, exhort to be sober-minded in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Now, verse 9, exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn Notice this phrase, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself peculiar people, zealous of good works, These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. And I just wanted to read verse 14 because it talks about God redeeming us. That was the theme of our music this morning. Father, we come to you because uh, we are needy. I'm a needy person. 
because I need your grace and your mercy fresh every day. I'm so grateful for your loving kindness toward me. I'm not deserving. I'm not worthy. But I thank you for it. I thank you that you call us to holiness because you're holy. You love us, and so you send us trials and tribulations to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. We're thankful for that. And open our eyes to the truth in this passage this morning. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now here in, in, in Titus, remember I said that serious Christians recognize there's no difference between doctrine, what the Bible teaches, and behavior, what a person does. And right here in the passage, verse 1 says, Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. And then what does Paul do? He tells them how to live primarily where? Did you notice primarily what they're talking about? Primarily where to live in their homes. That's very obvious from the instructions of the elderly women and, and the, young, the young ladies. But even these men and these young men that are mentioned in the passage, the aged men and the other men that are mentioned in the passage, these behaviors you're going to primarily notice at home. Let me, let me prove that to you real quick. When you come here, you always seem dignified to me. <laughs> There's a few exceptions, but you come, you're dressed nice, right? And uh, you're, you're pretty serious. I mean, we have some joking that goes on, but in general, we treat each other kindly. I've not heard... I can't remember the last time that I heard a harsh word said at Elmira Baptist Church. I'm not saying they're never said, maybe they are. I just, you wouldn't say them around me, right? But I tell you what, when you go home, how do you behave at home? That's the question. It's easy to look good when we come to, to a worship time of worship and to put our, put our best foot forward and make everything look good. These behaviors that he's dealing with are in the home. And here in a few weeks, Scotty's going to be in Colossians chapter 3. And almost all of that is in the home. Here's what I'm saying. God's word should transform our lives to the degree that we are changed people at home. That's real change. Change at work, not so hard. Change at church, easy. Change when no one is around but your spouse and your kids. That's hard. But that's what God's word does is it changes us. The word of God should impact our behavior. Let's start with an easy example and work to some harder ones. If a cannibal gets saved in the deepest, darkest jungles of Papua New Guinea, if a cannibal gets saved in Papua New Guinea, does he need to change his diet? Yes. He can't go killing his neighbor to eat the guy. That's obvious to us. Okay, great. How about you have, an, uh, you have a serial adulterer, a man who is unfaithful to his wife and he's just always been unfaithful to his wife. If he gets saved, does his life have to change? Yeah, it does. It has to change. Uh, how about the uh, uh, fella in, in just the all-American suburb? And his only real vice is he has a serious problem with anger. I mean, he just blows up sometimes. If he gets saved, does he have to treat other people with kindness and respect even when they provoke him? You see, God's word changes our lives. Now, it's easy for us to condemn the cannibals. Cannibals are bad. And serial adulterers, oh, those guys are the worst. But you have to understand, Pastor, I get angry because my spouse, I mean... Right? Or my kids. 
We always have an excuse for our sin, don't we? That's, and that's the problem. That's what I want to get to. Look here at what he tells us the aged men should do. Verse 2, the aged men, sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith and charity and patience. Now, when we talk about aged men, uh, it's, it's always somebody older than us, isn't it? Right? The aged men, oh, somebody else. I just took a few minutes to look up the life expectancy in the Roman Empire when he wrote this. And most people, most men were dead by the age of 55. So he's not talking to 70, 80-year-old men. He's probably talking to people in their 40s and their 50s. Those are the aged men. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you're in your 40s or 50s. <laughs> Some of you are like, I'm, I'm way past 50. I would, right? Those are the people he's talking to. I just want you to understand this. We're not talking about, you know, people that are much older than us. It's probably, for many of the men who are here today, it's us that he's talking to. And he says, this is what I want you to be. I want you to be sober. I want you to be self-controlled. I want you to be level-headed. I want you to be grave, to be dignified, to be serious. How many of you have been in a U.S. court of law for any reason? Okay, jury duty. Okay, um, I took a group of high schoolers to a federal courthouse in Portland one time, and I told them when we walked in, I said, now listen, guys, the judge is in control of his courtroom. If you do something that he doesn't think is right or is undignified or you distract in any way, he can have you literally thrown in jail. Now, they don't usually do that, but he can. It's called contempt of court. So I warned these high school students. Now, I don't know what I was thinking taking high school students to a federal courthouse. <laughs> uh, high school students don't think the way that you and I think. So, but I don't know. But we got there and we sat down. We'd gone through, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes of this court case. And there was a normal break in the court case. And the judge looked at me because I was probably the only adult looking person in the room. And he said, uh, sir, are these your students? And I thought, okay, what did they do? I'd like to see you and your students up here at the bench. So I looked around and said, come on. He just wanted to explain to us how the federal court system works. I was so, I thought for sure we were going to all be thrown in jail. When you go into a courtroom, I don't care how you're feeling, you've got to be dignified and treat other people with respect. And what God is saying to us aged men here, he's saying you've got to be dignified and treat other people with respect all the time, not just when you're in a federal courthouse. He says you need to be temperate. That is to be prudent, to be thoughtful, not to be a man of extremes, extremely this way and then extremely that way. He says you need to be sound in faith, sound in charity, and sound in patience. I... I I wish I could pull all of this apart, but I, I, let me just mention it this way. We are to be well-grounded in our faith. We are to be well-grounded in our love for each other, and we're to be well-grounded in our patience. We're to be well-grounded in faith, in love, and in patience. Well, when will you see, when will you and I see that a man is well-grounded in faith, in love, and in patience. Under what circumstances? When things go wrong. Hey, when, when everything's going my way, when all my plans are working out, and you do exactly what I tell you to do, how much faith do I need? How much love do I need when everyone's getting along? 
How much patience do I need when my plan is working out the right way? The question is, what happens when that goes south? What happens when I walk into one of my children's bedrooms and I say, hey, let's clean this up, and they say no? Now, I'm not saying a child should talk back to his parents. He should not. I mean, that just children should not talk back to their parents. But God also asked me to be sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in patience when my child is disrespectful to me. How about when you're driving down I-80 and some idiot causes a wreck up ahead of you? Now, that's when I have to have patience. I think if we could all just drive like normal people, we could get where we're going. But there's always got to be the guy who's weaving in and out of traffic at 90 miles an hour. It's when you get that notice from some company. We're raising your insurance. We're doubling your insurance. You think, how can they do that? I don't just tell you we're doubling your tithe. Everybody give twice as much this month. But your insurance company says we're doubling your insurance premiums. You call them. Can I get a break? No. You want to find another insurance company right now in California insurance? You understand insurers are pulling out of California. That's when your patience is tested. That's when your love is tested. That's when your faith is tested. Lord, I had a budget. Now my insurance is doubling. How am I supposed to meet my budget? Here's my point. You won't know if you're a man of faith and a man of love and a man of patience until there's trouble, until there's problems. That's the only way you'll find out. Some of you like to drink tea, and maybe you've had somebody bring you a little bag of tea, and they say, this is green tea or whatever, white tea or black. I don't even know what kind of teas there are. But here's the tea, right? How do you know what that tea is going to taste like? You put it in the hot water, don't you? Yeah, you could smell it, but that doesn't help me. I don't smell very well. I, I got to put that bag in the water. And you know what God loves to do to us aged men? He loves to put us in hot water. We don't like it. Mondo, don't laugh. You're, getting, you're almost as old as me, brother. He loves to put us in hot water. We say, God, why are you putting me in hot water? He says, because I want you to be well-grounded in faith. And I want you to be well-grounded in love. And I want you to be well-grounded in patience. Now, I'm going to say something here. It's gonna, it may shock you. I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm looking at the requirements for the aged men, and I can't do this. I, frankly, I can't even fulfill the requirements for the young men. But I, I can't do this. And here's our problem. Sometimes, I know, because I've talked to some of you, you look at what the Bible's asking you to do, and you just say, well, I can't do that. I told you earlier, I have good news for you. Don't let that bother you. Let's skip down, for the purpose of this, this message this morning, let's skip down to verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Amen. You can't do it. I can't do it. I look at this list. I don't think, oh, wow. Whew, I'm going to have to try harder. Because I've tried hard, and I can't live this list. I've tried to do all the right things, you know, and they tell you, if you do this and you do that, then it's going to work out this way and that way. It doesn't always work out the way they, people say. I need God's grace. And tomorrow morning when I get up, I'm going to need God's grace. And Tuesday morning, I, I'm, 
one of the things I ask for in my time with God each day is, give, Lord, give me grace for today. I don't even know what's coming. But I know I need your grace. What does the grace of God do? Well, number one, it saves us. And let me come back to that in a second. But number two, it teaches us that we can deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. We can say no to the ungodliness and the worldly lusts. And we can say yes to sober living, righteous living, and godly living. Now, some of you may say, well, that really is just, you know, just for those people, uh, Roman citizens 2,000 years ago, and, you know, you got to understand how bad American society is. Well, number one, I think you should do a little bit of research into how bad Roman society was. But number two, notice how this verse ends, in this present world. These truths are timeless. They don't have an expiration date. The grace of God doesn't just work in the pre-industrial era. It doesn't just work for Christians of 100 years ago. It works for you and it works for me today. If we'll be serious Christians and say, God, I can't. I, I, I see what you're asking me to do. I understand it. I comprehend it with my mind. I am not capable. Help me. And God's there to help. You remember Peter? Uh, you got to love Peter. I'm not talking about Peter Horn. I, he's a nice guy too. I love him. But I'm talking about Peter in the Bible. The, the apostle, the disciple of Jesus. He was so ready to try anything. So there's Jesus walking on the water. And Peter says, hey, if you're really Jesus, I want to walk in the water. Jesus says, come on. So Peter gets out of the boat. And he's walking on the water. He's doing it. And then he notices the waves and the wind. And he thinks, how can this be possible? And he starts to sink. And he says, Lord, help. And Jesus doesn't say, you idiot, you got yourself in this mess. You swim for the boat. He doesn't say to the other disciples, hey, you better come on over here. This guy's a loser. No, Jesus reaches out his hand and he brings Peter to safety. You know what, men? Can I just be frank? Oh, I'm going to be frank whether you want me to or not. <laughs> Our problem is we don't want to say, Lord, help. We want to think we can do it ourselves. We want to say, well, pastor can do it. I can do it. I'm telling you, I can't do it. And if you meet anybody who says, oh, I can live all the commands of the Bible, they're lying to you. They need, if they're going to live godly and righteously and soberly in this present world, they're going to need God's grace, just like you, just like me. So let's quit thinking there's something we've got to do you know, we just got to follow the right guy or we got to get the right book. Now, by the way, I love books. I read a lot of books. But it's not books. It's God's grace. It's God's grace. Now, again, let me say what I said earlier. You still have to make the right choices. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives within me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Listen, you've got to make the choices, but God's grace is always sufficient for you to make the right choice. Now let me get to where I'm headed with this. And I, I, I have notes for the, for the ladies and the other ladies and the, and the young men. But let me just summarize all of that by saying you go through those lists and you're going to find out none of us can live up to God's expectations without God's grace. Whatever category you fall in, you can't live up without God's grace. Let me also point out, and some of you may keep this in your back pocket, you may be talking about the Bible with a co-worker or a neighbor and need to point this out. There's no non-binary category here. 
there are men and there are women. Just, you know, God created us male and female. So just keep that in mind too. But let me get to this part about the grace of God because we have people, Christian leaders, in our country, in the United States, and there's an ongoing discussion about whether God's grace is really sufficient for Christian living. And if you are familiar with these two uh, men, and I'm not going to mention them today, but if you're familiar and you want to discuss it with me, I'd, I'd be glad to talk about, about it with you. But what it boils down to is homosexuality. And we have a Christian, he calls himself a Christian. I've never met him. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I don't know. But he has, we have a Christian leader who says, listen, some people have these same sex desires and they just cannot get rid of them. They've prayed, they've asked God, and God, and I'm quoting here, God has not answered their prayers. Therefore, now I am no, no longer quoting him, but his actions have shown we've got to accept their homosexual behavior as acceptable. I'm not really sure where you go with that. Do you understand how much that attacks the grace of God? It says God's grace isn't sufficient for some people. Their sin is so big. Their sin is so difficult. They're, they're just so broken that God cannot help them. That's a lie of the devil. That's a lie of the devil. Okay, now we all agree on that. Okay, but the truth is, so is your pet sin. That's my problem. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm loving this controversy because I love listening to controversies. I don't like being in the middle, but I like being on the sidelines. I love hearing these guys argue scripture back and forth, right? As long as they talk about everything that I don't have a problem with, we're good. But the truth is, the grace of God helps all of us. Let's take that argument and go back to the serial, serial adulterer. How about the serial adulterer? Is God's grace sufficient to make him faithful to his wife? Amen. How about the kleptomaniac? Well, I prayed and I just can't quit stealing things. We'd say, no, that's ridiculous. Of course you can quit stealing. But how about anger? How many of you have a problem with anger in which you says, well, you know, pastor, I prayed about that. I've, I've sort of worked out. I, I just don't think I can overcome it. That's a lie of the devil. God says, I, God says, I want you to be, and you can look through this list, sober comes up. The idea is self-controlled. You're not allowed to fly off the handle. You say, well, pastor, how do you? Do? I, I have to have the grace of God. How about lying? Some of you, your pet sin is lying. And you only lie to, to help uh, to soothe people's feelings. That's still wrong. God asks us to tell the truth. And you say, well, I can't. Y yes, you can. The grace of God is sufficient. What about worry? Now, if you struggle with worry, I know that it seems insurmountable. I mean, it, the thoughts just come into your head. It seems like you can't control them. But what does God tell us to do in in 2 Corinthians 10, he says, we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Well, then I, I'm here to tell you, God's grace is sufficient so that you don't have to worry. How about bitterness? Maybe there's someone you cannot forgive. I mean, they have really deeply hurt you, and I have no doubt that their hurt is greater than my comprehension. But I know God comprehends it. And I know God says... Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And His grace is sufficient 
for me to overcome bitterness, for you to overcome bitterness. But what's wrong? We don't want God to interfere in our lives. So we make excuses for our pet sins so we can continue to live the same life as we lived before. That is not serious Christianity. That's casual Christianity. I'll follow God as long as it's easy, as long as it fits my personality, as long as it's what I want it to be. But as soon as God says, well, you've got to quit lying. You've got to quit worrying. You've got to start forgiving. You've got to start being kind to people who are mean to you. Then all bets are off. I'm just going to do what I want to do. That's casual Christianity. And we want serious Christians. Let me show you one other thing here in this passage. Uh, verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation. God's grace also brings salvation. It may be that you continue to struggle with your sin day by day because you're not a child of God and you don't have God's grace. It's like flipping on the lamp switch, flipping the lamp switch and flipping the lamp switch and the light never comes on. And then you look down. Oh, it's unplugged. Well, you can, you can keep flipping it as long as you want, but until you plug that lamp into a power source, it's never, you're never going to get any light out of it. And if you're not a child of God, you don't have God's grace. It's there for you. It's like the power in the receptacle, but you've got to plug into that receptacle. Let me tell you how that's done. Number one, you've got to admit that you're a sinner. I think this is becoming very quickly the, 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 the shed, the, the, the uh, watershed, thank you, the watershed between believers, people who know that this is God's word and that there's a God in heaven and everyone else. We don't like to say we're sinners. We like to make excuses. Well, it's poverty. Uh, it's a lack of education. Uh, they were abused as a child. And, and, and heaven help those who were abused as a child. They, they desperately need God's grace. But I'm telling you, God's grace is sufficient for all of that. The problem is we don't want to give up our sin. You're a sinner. Number two, Jesus died and rose again. To pay the penalty for your sin and mine. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why did Jesus have to die? Why, why was he buried? Why, why did he come back to life? Why did he rise from the grave? To show his power over death and over sin. And if you're not a child of God, to become a child of God is as simple as recognizing that you're a sinner. Admitting to God, we call it confession, saying, God, I'm a sinner. You're right. I've broken your law. And I realize that Jesus Christ died in my place, rose again, came back to life for my sin. Forgive me. You see, this gift is given to us by God's grace, but this gift is received by faith. The Bible says, for by grace, that's God's grace, are you saved through faith. And any one of you can walk out of this room this morning, go home, knowing that your sins are forgiven, you have eternal life. I was talking with a man who, for many years, um, ministered in Vermont. And I guess the part of Vermont where he was had a lot of Roman Catholics. And so he learned from a friend that when he met someone who said, I'm Catholic, he would say to them, has the priest shown you how you can know you're going to heaven? And he said, most of the time they would say, no, the priest has never shown me that. He'd say, well, let me show you. He'd get his Bible out. 
Now, I'm sort of looking for the next Catholic, the person who says, hey, I'm Catholic. Great. Has the priest told you how you can have eternal life? Because the Bible tells us that you can know you have eternal life. And that's the first step in this serious Christianity that I'm talking about. You have to know that you're a child of God. If there's any confusion about that in your own mind, if you're wondering if you're a child of God, if you're wondering if you're a Christian, during the invitation, I'd like you to come to the front. I'd like to match you up with someone who's just going to take a Bible and explain to you again what I just explained to you. Because it's that simple. If you are a Christian, let me encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal in your heart what your pet sin is. I don't know what it is. I couldn't preach on all the pet sins in this room. But you know what it is, and if you'll allow the Holy Spirit to lead you, he's going to say, hey, this is your sin. And you've been telling God, no, I don't, I don't need to deal with it. I can't. I prayed. You didn't answer. And I'm telling you, the grace of God is sufficient for all of this. The grace of God is sufficient for all of this. Father, thank you for bringing these folks today. Some, I'm burdened, are not your children. They're not, they're not a Christian yet. I, I don't know because I don't see people's hearts, but you see hearts. And I'm asking that your Holy Spirit would convict them of sin, of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and of the judgment to come. So that instead of holding on to their hope for something else, they would recognize that it's only through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, that they can become Christians. I'm praying for those Christians who up until now have been aspirational. They, they want to do what's right. They, they have some ideas that, yeah, they're not really living up, but they just can't do it. And so maybe they've been procrastinating. Maybe they've been making excuses. Lord, I don't know. Convict them as well. For the serious-minded Christians, I'm asking, Father, that you would stir us up to recognize that we live in a world that is, that is on the, the fast track to destruction. And it's our job to go and proclaim the truth and teach others all these things that you've commanded us. To change our lives, to change our behaviors, to bring glory and honor to you, to adorn the doctrine of you, our God and Savior. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.